How have you advanced God's kingdom on earth with your life and possessions that he has loaned you? Dear friends, the kingdom of God is about Jesus entering our hearts through the power of the Holy Spirit, and he takes ownership of us. Just how well are we managing God's vineyard? Welcome to Moments of Hope with David Chadwick. If you've been following along on our broadcast, you'll know that David is in a series of messages called The Kingdom, a study of the parables Jesus gave. Today, David takes us to the Gospel of Matthew in the second section of a message he calls The Parable of the Tenants. The Israelites and leaders' response to the prophets was to beat or kill them. And they did so with a good number of them. What did God do then? He sent even more of his servants to remind Israel of their responsibility to bear fruit. Notice how many God sent over the years, over the decades, over the centuries. But with each one, they were beaten, killed, and stoned. Until finally the owner said, I'll send my own son my only son, the heir of everything I own. And he perhaps can get through to them. So the son is sent, and what do they do to him? They say, ha-ha, we kill him, we get the inheritance, it's ours. And so Jesus at that moment, after teaching about the son who was killed as well, asked this question to the religious leaders. When the owner returns, not if, but but he is going to return. When the owner returns, what will he do with the tenants? Their answer was this. He should kill those wretched tenants. He should get rid of them entirely. And he should give the vineyard to somebody else who will produce fruit as they should. Then Jesus quotes from Psalm 118, verse 42. And he says, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Well, every builder in here knows that the most important stone in a building is the cornerstone. Upon that stone, every other part of the building is built. And Jesus said, I'm the cornerstone of the building that God is building here, and yet you've rejected it. You've rejected me. And on me, you're going to fall And God's going to do something marvelous because of your rejection of me. Then he says, as the religious leaders did, this vineyard is going to be given to another who will produce fruit. Now, for all of you ecclesiologists out there, which is a fancy word for church folk, God did give the vineyard to another. Now, remember, he called Israel to be a holy people. When he made a covenant with Israel through Abraham that was extended through Moses, giving of the law at Mount Sinai, he created a holy people, a different kind of person who worshiped the one true God, obeyed his laws, and wanted to live as holy people under a holy God. And when he brought them into the promised land, they were to live amidst a godless, pagan, Canaanite group of people, and they'd be a different kind of people, and in their differences, they would draw the world to God. That was his design. They failed. They became enclosed, self-righteous, judgmental, angry. One of the 
best rabbinic prayers to give evidence to how they refuted the world was, Lord, I thank you that I'm not a dog or a Gentile. They hated the Gentiles. And so God, through Jesus, took away the Israelite vineyard and gave it to somebody else. To whom did he give it? Folks, to whom did he give it? The, the church of Jesus Christ. And most of our theological struggles come with God who's trying to convince us it's really his and we think it's ours. And, and isn't it interesting for those of us who are parents and have children, how many times we saw, saw our children fight over a toy and one would say what? It's mine. And the other would say, no, it's mine. No, it's mine. No, it's mine. Till finally the parent has to intercede and yank out the toy and realize we're the ones who bought it. And we say, no, it's mine. And, and that's what God's trying to do with all of us is we cling tenaciously to our toys on this side of eternity and say, mine. The parable shows people who wrongly believed life and creations are mine. And therefore, if you become myopic and enclosed, you'll never bear fruit for God. If you believe this life is yours and you can live it as you want, you'll never bear fruit for God. Dear friends, I don't like talking about hell, but it's a reality in the Bible. Jesus taught it mostly. Here's what I'm convinced of. Hell is the ultimate human monument to our free will and rebellion against God. Let me ask you, why would God want to spend eternity with people who don't love him? Let me ask you, why would you want to spend eternity with a God you don't love? Human free will and human sin are the ultimate definitions of the reality of eternal separation from God. Third point, God's patience. Or another biblical term is God's long-suffering. <laughs> Isn't it interesting? We all want mercy for ourselves and justice for other people. Isn't that true? We want God to give us mercy and give justice to those who've hurt us. But the truth is God is long-suffering. He's patient with all of us. And we all don't get what we deserve because of his patience. But I need to warn you that his patience doesn't last forever. Either through death or by the owner returning, which Jesus clearly said the owner will come back. We're going to have to deal with Jesus, which leads to the fourth point. What will you do with Jesus? For those of you who are spiritual skeptics here today, still wrestling with this whole Christian thing, your primary question will always be this one. Who's Jesus? The prophets came and warned the people, as did Jesus. But Jesus was more than a prophet. He claimed so. He said he's God's only son. He's God in human flesh. What will you do with that claim? He said, I came to die on the cross for the forgiveness of people's sins so that they can have heaven. He's the one who said, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Whoever believes in him will never perish but have eternal life. He made that claim. What do you do with that claim? He said he's God's only son. And either he was lying to us 
But his teachings don't sound like those of a liar, do they? Or he was a crazy man, but his teachings don't sound like the teachings of a crazy man, do they? Or thirdly, he's the truth. And if he's the truth, he demands your life, your soul, your all. And as a part of that same question, you've got to deal with this one. What do you do with the undeniable, overwhelming evidence of the resurrection? Over 500 people saw Jesus dead than alive. An hallucination? Oh, 500 plus people all have the same hallucination at the same time? It doesn't work that way. Hallucinations are individual. What do you do with all the names that Paul and the other apostolic writers give in the New Testament about people who saw him alive? It's as if he said, go talk to them yourself. They saw him dead. They saw him alive. Go talk to them yourself. What will you do with the overwhelming eyewitness accounts of the resurrection of Jesus? Because here's the deal. The resurrection proves Jesus is God. Moses is still in his tomb. Buddha's still in his tomb. Muhammad's still in his tomb. Jesus is the only one who was raised eternally to resurrection glory. What do you do with that? Which leads to my final point, Jesus' final judgment. If you're not convinced by his death and resurrection, what more can convince you? And he will come back again. Until that day, life is hard, isn't it? I mean, Firefighters who volunteer to put out fires to save people lose their lives. You lose your jobs. You have people walk out of your lives. They reject you. I mean, life stinks sometimes. But it won't last forever. The owner will return and declare, mine, exclamation mark. And this world will be turned back into what God originally intended it to be. And until that day, he gives us internally his presence that allows us to face anything without fear. Only biblical antidote to fear that's given throughout the scripture is do not fear for I am with you. Do not be afraid. I am your God I will comfort you and I'll uphold you with my righteous right hand. But until that day he comes back, the bottom line of this message today is it's God's vineyard, not ours. It's God's world, not ours. It's God's life, not ours. So just to make sure you all leave a little uncomfortable my daddy used to say the purpose of preaching is to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable. I'm going to afflict the comfortable right now, but because I really love you, and sometimes it's necessary. I want to give you hope, and I do, I think, a lot of times. Sometimes I need to challenge you. Let me ask you these questions. Do you believe your life is God's vineyard? Do you believe that every pulse you feel every breath of air, you inhale every morsel of food, you ingest is a gift from the one who owns you? Do you believe all you own belongs to God? Would you be willing to put a tag on every possession, your car, your furniture, your clothes, everything, just a little tag that says, 
his. How are you faithfully overseeing God's life he gave to you? What fruit are you bearing for the kingdom? In your character, your holiness, in your witness to the world, do you have a passion for the world to know Christ? How are you faithfully overseeing his possessions he loaned you? Do you believe that everything you have is on loan from God? The average American Christian gives 2 to 3% of his or her income away. The faithful Jew was commanded by God to give 10% under law. How much more should we who are under grace give more than that? that that's why I teach the tithe as the beginning point for generosity. Marilyn and I have practiced it for years, and we've tried to give more and more and more away as we can. And that's why I can only speak for myself. I would love one day to be able to give away the 90% and live on the 10. Why do I need it? I'm not taking it with me. Have you ever seen a U-Haul attached to a hearse? That was supposed to get a better laugh than it got anyway. Have you ever seen that? I mean, we don't take it with us. Do you believe that one day Jesus will return to earth? Do you believe that when he returns, he will hold you and me and all people accountable for how we've used his life and his possessions that he loaned us? Now, in Matthew 25, we're going to look later on at the parable of the talents, which is another kingdom parable. And I need to remind all of us that Jesus said everybody has ten, five, or one, parable, uh, one talent. Ten, five, or one. If you have one talent, you're not responsible for those who have ten. If you have five, you're not responsible for the one who has one. You are responsible for the talent you have. And you will be held accountable for how you've used or not used his talents he has loaned you until he returns. How have you advanced God's kingdom on earth with your life and possessions that he has loaned you? Dear friends, the kingdom of God is about Jesus entering our hearts through the power of the Holy Spirit, and he takes ownership of us. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 6.20, for you are not your own. You were bought with a price. Receiving Jesus means kicking off self off the throne of your heart and inviting him to live there. It's saying, you're king, I'm not. And all that I have and all that I am is yours. The kingdom of God in the parables begins with Jesus' internal reign on the thrones of our hearts. Then his spirit flows through us, and it's the kingdom of God through us. So every time you give hope to a despairing person, you're advancing the kingdom of God. Every time you pray a prayer of intercession for someone who's hurting, you're advancing the kingdom of God. Every time you go serve your neighbor who's hurting and feeling hopeless in the name of Jesus, you're advancing the kingdom of God.
when you serve the poor and care for the needy and go to a school and read with a kid who can't read, whatever form it may take, when you give yourself to other people, you advance the kingdom of God. And that's your job description. Advance the kingdom of God until he returns. And everybody can do it in large ways for those of us who have more of a platform, but in small ways for those of you who don't. I had after the second service, a lady come to me and say, I'm a checkout person at one of the local grocery stores, and I use every opportunity when people just pour out their hearts in two minutes buying their food to have hope in Jesus. She's advancing the kingdom of God. So be fruitful. Christ in you, Christ through you, That's what the parable is trying to say. It's not mine. (laughs) It's his. To be used for his glory. Coming up, David joins me in a discussion about the fact that we can't live one second without hope. We'll be right back. This is the Ministry Minute focusing on ministries that have a positive impact on our community. I'm Mark McManus, and here is Jim Noble with the Dream Center Charlotte. Hello, my name is Jim Noble with the Charlotte Mecklenburg Dream Center. And Bo and I, the director of the Dream Center, just wanted to take a minute and tell you guys thank you. Moments of hope, David and Marilyn Chadwick, all of you there, Dean, uh, we all been phenomenal for us. Uh, you, you've been there since 08 when we started King's Kitchen, and that kind of grew into the Dream Center, and the meals we've fed the last eight weeks, probably exceeding 55,000 now, I guess. Uh, we're so grateful you guys have made such an impact in the city by reaching out to those that have needs greater than we have. And uh, what do you think, Bo? Yeah, so it's been amazing to, to just watch the, the work that's happened um, with the meals as they've gone out. You know, uh, we, I always tell people it's not about the food, it's about the relationships that are formed and the ministry that takes place. And so, um, and JT Williams and Thomasboro and Reed Park, I mean, it has opened up doors that we never thought would be open. Um, you know, we've seen people come out um, and just welcomed us with open arms, just so grateful for the meals, and, and we just thank you moments of hope and just this couldn't be this wouldn't be possible without you guys and you know uh the the first call we made uh when we decided to go this route and provide these meals was the moments of hope and it was uh, a phone call that was met with a resounding yes and so we're so appreciative of you guys and just um everything you all do for us and for the kingdom and not only that but you uh, also set into our kitchen in the dream center now this week started producing meals there, and as the restaurants open back up, all the meals will shift to the Dream Center with the kitchen you helped us do. So we're so grateful you guys. God bless you. God bless Moments of Hope, and we just pray an unlimited return harvest on the seed you sowed into this ministry. Thank you very much. I'm Jen Houston. Thanks for listening today. Joining me in the studio is our pastor, David Chadwick. David, thanks for being with us. Thank you, Jen. Great being with you as well. 
In your morning e-devotions, you've recently started a series that you are calling Davidisms. And one of your recent devotions was called, We Can't Live One Second Without Hope. <laughs> <laughs> well, Jen, you know, a lot of my friends affectionately have nicknamed me the Hope Guy. And that's I think cool. that's because I love to live in hope. I mean, what's the opposite possibility? Live in despair? Yeah. I don't want to live in despair. I want to live in hope, believing that God can even take the bad stuff and work good out of it. And one of my favorite phrases that was given to me years ago that I remembered that we now include in these Davidisms, these daily expressions of faith and hope that I have gotten through the years, is this one. A person can live 40 days without food, four days without water, four minutes without air, but not one second without hope. Wow. Think about that. It's true. Mm. We need hope to survive. Hope embodies encouragement, optimism, brighter days ahead. It fights depression. That's because hope is a gift from God. It gives us strength to face another day. Numerous scriptures teach of the importance of hope. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love, mm. Psalm thirty-three, eighteen. It's quite simple. When we hope in the Lord, the Lord honors the hope we have in him. So each morning when you wake up, open your eyes and speak hope into your heart. Mm-hmm. Understand the meaning of Psalm 42.2. Read it aloud and say to your soul, why so downcast, my soul? You put your hope in God. Mm. Jen, I love that. That's so good. Because it's saying, basically, you've got control over your soul, what you feel, mm. how you think, what you choose, and you can begin each day by saying, hey, soul, don't you be downcast. Mm-hmm. You know, you put your hope in God. You choose in your mind to speak to your soul to make choices about hope, which then will allow your feelings to follow suit. That's good. The Apostle Peter emphasized our eternal hope. He adjured us to prepare our minds by fixing our eyes on the hope of grace, our eternal salvation through Jesus' life and death on the cross. That's 1 Peter 1, 13. We need to have a heavenly hope as well Mm -hmm. to believe after we die, death is not the final answer. Mm -hmm. Jesus is alive, and he raises us who believe in him as well to a resurrection hope. Therefore, dear listeners, remain hopeful each and every day of your life because, here's the bottom line, you can live 40 days without food, four days without water, four minutes without air, but not one second without hope. That is so good. Such powerful truth. I think the the last string for me when I feel almost completely hopeless is the scripture that says God uses all things. And and I just fall on that when everything else fails and I'm just grasping for hope. That That is what I, I, I hold on to. Yeah. And never forget, Jen, in that Romans 8, 28 verse that God uses all things for good and for mm-hmm. his glory. It is for people who love God and are called according to his purpose, who are doing the will of the Lord in their life as best as they understand it. For those people who love God and are living in his purpose, we can trust that even in the bad stuff, in the despair, the depression, all things are working together for good. And don't forget verse 29, as Paul takes us through the process of moving toward Jesus from his sovereign grace, which causes 
predestination, which causes foreknowledge, which causes justification. Then after that, Paul says, for we are being conformed to the image of Jesus. That's the sanctification process, but that can only happen in the bad times. Mm -hmm. That can only happen with the bad stuff. And that's why you can claim all things are working together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose because they have this promise of being conformed to the image of Jesus. Thank you all for listening. Go to momentsofhopechurch.org and you can get a daily moment of hope. It's my way of giving you hope every day. This has been Moments of Hope with David Chadwick, Senior Pastor of Moments of Hope Church. Today's message is from our online worship service. And you can be a part of our service each Sunday morning at both 9 and 11 o'clock by going to momentsofhopechurch.org. And while you're online, be sure to sign up for David's daily Moments of Hope, delivered every morning to your inbox. And also, check out David's weekly Hopecast. They're both free and available through our website. Again, that web address is momentsofhopechurch.org. For David and the entire Moments of Hope Church staff, this is Jen Houston. I hope you have a great weekend.